You're listening to the Down the Pub podcast, Canada's premier football show. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome to this episode of the Down the Pub podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'm joined by former Newcastle, Sunderland and Fulham midfielder and current manager of Sudanese team. Hope I'm saying this rightly. Uh, Al... Merke, <laughs> Lee Clark. Hi, <laughs> Anthony. It's Al Merrick, but I'll let Al- you off because I uh, I got the pronunciation wrong when I first got there. But it's Al Merrick um, from Sudan. Okay, thanks, man. Al Merrick, got it. Okay, so uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. No so, problem. So uh, we we can't really talk about anything until we talk about the biggest news in football right now. Um, the ill-fated Super League. Uh, how could the uh, clubs get it so wrong? And do you think there should be some sort of punishment for the uh, the teams that try to join? Well, it could get it so wrong because this has been a build-up of many years of um, the the wealthy getting wealthier, and the rest just being left to fend for themselves. And obviously, um, you've had this scenario with the global ba- um, pandemic that, um, you know, certain clubs lower down the pyramid have found it really difficult. Um, you know, leagues have had to be stopped, um, you know, over this. And um, in, the, in the big clubs, you know, in the Premier League, have seen an opportunity and they've tried to take it and they haven't understood the... Um, what the game means, especially in England, it's it's for the supporters. Each club you see it, you talk about, um, the most important people in that club, no matter what position they are, are the supporters. They have gone through and been supporters of that club for many, many years, generations of families, all the way down for, you know, so long. And, and, and they're good. Um, they they you know, they, they support the, those clubs through thick and thin, through the good times and the bad times. And they're just, um, these these clubs that try to set up this Super League uh, just took that for granted and uh, want to just, just blow up um, football in England apart. And thankfully the fans have showed them that that's not possible. Uh, obviously, you were around at the the start of the, uh, the Premier League. Was it the same kind of uh, feeling around that league when it started off because obviously the teams are branching off into something different themselves was it the same kind of feeling or is, do you think that like with the Premier League like everybody knew it was, it was going to be for the good of the game no because the Premier League was basically a change in name and and, and a little bit change in um, how they portrayed it which allowed ridiculous amounts of money to come into football but what's really irked is over over the period is that not enough of that money has found its way to, to clubs in, in the championship, in, in the League One, in the League Two, into the National League, in the National League North and South, into the even lower leagues and that. Because there's so much money, you know, moving around in the Premier League and with the Premier League clubs and with the television deals and the, and the, the sponsorship that goes with that you know, um, a lot more could be helped. And I think that's come to the fore with the um, the pandemic and it showed you, you know, the small amounts those clubs do get 
um, in terms of, of revenue from the Premier League. Um, so I think, as I said, it's been a build-up and teams have just got greedy. <clears throat> they've thought that they've got so much power that they can just do what they want. And thankfully, that's proved that kind of be the case. And um, I think some of these owners from the English clubs are going to um, have a very uncomfortable <laughs> period in charge um, for the next you know, foreseeable future. And that's even if they stay in charge of those clubs, if they don't relinquish the, 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 the having the owners of these clubs. You seen last night the demonstrations outside the Emirates. Um, I don't think the fans are ready to forgive. I, I think they've had enough, even though there's been... They've pulled out of it, and there's been different kinds of apologies. Some public, some you know, um, some just written on the on the social media accounts of the clubs. I, I, I don't think that's going to be enough, to be honest with you. And I think they're going to be. Uh, they've got two options: either sell up, um, or be ready to to accept a very very uncomfortable ride for the foreseeable future. What you said there about like the the money not trickling down as it is, they just kind of make it make you feel sick when you hear them like suddenly caring about the pyramid in England. Like, I mean, you you've managed in the lower leagues, I mean, you've Rock Berry who don't exist anymore. So, like, what's it like at those kind of clubs managing when like the money's not there? Like, how like obviously you know with Liverpool and Manchester United, the managers have endless budgets. What's it like trying to manage on a shoestring? It's difficult, and you know what. I wasn't around managing when the uh, pandemic's been around as well, so that would have made it even more difficult. You know, these lower league clubs, they, they, they work from Monday to Friday, that they, you know, that they haven't got millions of pounds in a slush fund to fall back on. So when they weren't allowed to open their club shops, when they weren't allowed to have fans in, but they still had to play the game, so they still had to pay their players, they still had to... You know, pay for hotels. They still have to pay for travel for away games. All this type of logistics. It's just money that they cannot afford. And you know, they need the game money to to pay the bills, pay the salaries of the employees. And uh, it's really difficult. Um, and you know, you see the profits that the, the, the big clubs make. And even if they just tap into and give each Premier League club give one percent of the profit that they make from the TV deals per season, it would be an astronomical amount of money that they could drip feed down to the to the other clubs, and it would make a, a, a huge difference if those lower league clubs knew um, that uh, they, they had that type of income coming. And you know, we still need those smaller clubs because they still produce. Some very talented young players, you know, a lot of the these lower league clubs that keep their academies going or that's or their development centres or whatever they call them, to to cause the the lifeblood of those clubs is to get a a little superstar through their academy into their first team and they can sell on to the big boys and that keeps them going for a few years. And 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 it's still important that, you know, these clubs do that. And then the big clubs in England can you know, come in and, and get 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 these young players from these lower league clubs and, and pay a, a good transfer fee. So they they're getting a good young player, but they're also helping out that club. And um, so I'm I'm all I'm all for that. Um, and I just think over the last decade, 
the the the, the greed of so many people has just overshadowed uh, too many things. Well said. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned at the top of the show, there you're uh, you're managing in Sudan now, uh, in the middle of a pandemic. How the hell did that job come about, and uh, how's it been so far? <laughs> well, it could come about through agents that you get to know, and um, I'd, I'd always been a coach who was interested in overseas. I had an opportunity, I think it was 2017, to go manage overseas in Europe. And I'd accepted the job verbally, but my father took ill, so it wasn't the right time for me to go abroad. Um, so I ultimately had to turn that opportunity down. Um, so, uh, yeah, the agent contact is about the job. About two weeks before I eventually accepted it, I'd done some due diligence on the club, found out it was one of the biggest clubs in Africa, competing in the African Champions League. Ridiculous passion and, and support when the fans were allowed back in after COVID. And I decided to give it a go, a new experience, a new uh, challenge for us, new culture, and thoroughly enjoying it. Um, we're second top of the league with the game in hand. If we win that game in hand, we go top of the league, joint top with our big rivals, Al Hilal, who we've got to play soon. Um, and then obviously, you know, we had great experience in the Champions League. That's my ambition, get, get the club to win the Sudanese League again, qualify for the Champions League and build a team that can get through the group stages of that and get to the last eight of the and beyond of the last uh, of the African Champions League. So that, that that's the, the key for me. And also be around when the COVID restrictions have eased and we get the 43,000 that we, we, we got before the COVID for every game. Yeah, I saw the, uh, like I saw some of the games on YouTube and I saw the stadium and stuff like that. Like the, the fans look, up for it and like so so what are the what's the facilities like there and like um how's the standard like obviously you played at the top level so uh how's the standard of the football well the, the facilities we our stadium it's nicknamed the red castle is is fantastic our local rivals al hilal stadium is just across the road they have a terrific stadium um and uh so yeah the, the, i mean the standard you're probably looking league one top end, possibly bottom end of champ. There's some nice. talented players. I mean, I've got, out of my squad, I've got 11 of the Sudanese national team squad in there who've just qualified for the first time in the decade for the African uh, Nations Cup in Cameroon next summer. Uh, nice. So the, the Sudanese football's on a real high. The new coach of Al-Hilal was... Uh, a staff member of Mourinho when he was at Man United and such in Chelsea he's come in as Hilal's head coach so that, that you know it's it's getting a, a big profile obviously we go around the Africa competing in the Champions League so I've been to Tanzania I've been to Congo um, you know and we, we, we take the team away on training camps just being in Egypt uh, we've got the Arab Champions League to, to look forward to before the season ends so yeah it's it's a massive new challenge for us. I'm loving it. The heat's mental mind for a, <laughs> a, a Newcastle a Newcastle lad. But um, apart from that, yeah, I mean, it's it's the new culture. The players praying before the game, praying at half time and stuff like that. But I've quickly got to know. I'm very respectful of of the culture that I've gone into. At the moment, it's it's Ramadan, so. You know, changing oh, wow. the in in the eating habits and sleeping sleeping habits. We're going back into camp next Tuesday, and the, and the players will be training at midnight under the lights to allow them to uh, have the energy 
after they've had that that, that food, you know, when, when it's gone into darkness. So that'll be something new for us, coaching a team in tactical sessions at midnight. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing, man. Uh, so <laughs> so um, how's the language barrier? Obviously, like you're, you've got like the, the thickest Geordie accent on the planet. So what, what's that like when you're trying to communicate with the players? <laughs> No, it's it's been perfect. The, the sports scientist and head of uh, fitness, uh, strength and conditioning, um, he's he's originally from Egypt, but he's been living in America for the last eight years. He's fantastic at his job, but he's obviously got great English, and um, he interprets it for me. But also, I've got an analyst, Stephen, who is from Sudan, but spent. Um, He's studying years in, in London. He lived in London for seven years, so he helps with the language barrier as well. So the, there's no real issue with that. It's it's fine. Um, you know, we do, we analyse the teams, the opponents, we debrief our games on the footage and talk to the players and we explain the training sessions and, um, uh, you know, we, we go from there and everything's been fine. So uh, obviously this week we saw, like, I'm a Tottenham fan, we saw... Mourinho uh, loses job. Um, obviously, you've been in tough situations as a manager yourself. Like, how do you detach yourself away from that kind of pressure when, like, as you mentioned, like the the fans care so much about the club and you've got all that pressure on your back? How do you detach yourself mentally away from um, the pressure when you've got like you're on a bad run, like the way that Mourinho has been? Difficult because there's so many aspects of it now with social media and it's very difficult to get away from the criticisms. And, I, and I'm and i a big believer in um, I'll accept any kind of criticism for me, professional performance. If I'm the manager and we're not getting results and my team isn't playing particularly, particularly well, I've got to take it on the chin that... Um, you know, we're going to get criticised for that. Where where are totally against things where it oversteps the mark and it gets personal. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm good friends with Steve Bruce and Steve's, you know, got what he thought was his dream job in terms of managing his hometown club. Any of us Geordies in management would, would love that honour. Um, and Steve got that. And and Steve had it, you know, he had a, he's had an awful time with results before the last couple of weeks were results and performances and he was getting criticised and I was criticising him as myself even though I'm his friend about that because he understands that that's the game we're in where it's overstepped the mark there's been a lot of personal abuse towards Steve there's been even stuff towards his family mm-hmm. um, and, and and that's totally uncalled for it's it's not what the game's about you know we're all doing my jobs we're in the public eye yet yeah, if we're not doing my jobs to, to the way that the support has demand um, and, and, and Steve will be the first to admit the level of performance and results before the last couple of weeks was miles away. It, was, it wasn't good enough. Um, so, you know, we've just got to... Um, yeah, and, and that's where it oversteps the mark. And I've, I've been involved in that myself. I, I've, you know, not been a, a, a big advocate of social media. <clears throat> the LME advised us to take up one... Um, media outlet of it just to you know have me profile out there but uh, I don't do the other stuff but my children do and you know they have been on the end of personal abuse themselves because of the results the clubs have managed and that's where it gets totally out of order it's uncalled for totally get the fact that I'm you know I've got to be criticised for the way my team plays and gets results I'll, I'll accept that all day but there's a lot of it which is 
they call it now what's the in thing fake news as well yes the comment on why the comment on why you leave players out which is why you've picked a certain team and some of the stories that come out I mean there was an individual was a player I had at Birmingham and I didn't pick him for a couple of games and apparently I didn't pick him because I'd had a party at my house um, and the players were invited and this particular player was caught uh, urinating in my koi carp uh, <laughs> pond um, which was just unbelievably miles away I mean one I'd, I'd, I've never had um, a, 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 a party at my family property where I've invited the players from any club I've managed back and two I've never had a koi carp <laughs> pond in my life so all that, but you know that that just wow. it, it, it grows arms and legs, and before you know it, you haven't to answer something in a, in a press conference about it because it's just gone from someone posting it, and it 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 it, it, it grows and grows and grows, and it's out there in the public domain. And it's up, you know, you Google about yourself, and it comes up on 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 Google. So it's absolutely ridiculous. So like I I, I know the the play you're talking about, and like I can't believe that a journalist would actually believe that story and ask you about our press conference. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's out there in the public domain and it's you know, it's I know there's a lot of you know, that can be laughed at and there's some stuff that gets put on social media which has just gone overboard in the last few months with the, the footballers, the, the, yeah. the receiving of the racist abuse and, and the personal abuse and asking these major companies to do something about it. But which really hasn't happened as yet. Um, so yeah, this in an effect it can affect your life because it, it, it can it can stain your it can stain your uh, reputation, and it's totally against um, and it's just total nonsense. Basically, ninety nine point nine nine percent of it is in any. So uh, speak, speaking of pressure, um, you've obviously had one of the best manager celebrations ever when Birmingham stayed up on that last day and all that kind of stuff. So. What was that day like for you on the bench? Because obviously you went 2-0 down. Like, it looks like you're going to go down. And then um, the lads came back. Like, what was it like for you on the bench? And what did you say to the lads to get to G them up to come back? Well, you know what? That day itself, I was probably the calmest I'd been for a long time. And I don't know. I don't know the reasons in terms of, you know, my usual pre-match talk in the hotel before we leave so before that game at Bolton you usually do um, footage and of, of the opponent their strengths and their weaknesses and where you feel you can get at them and, and make the game and get the win but what I'd done leading up to that game um, I'd got my analyst guys to go around the families of the players um, the mums the dads the wives the girlfriends the children the brothers the sisters and just put a montage of um, of each player, some personal messages from my family, um, how proud they were of what they'd done. You know, this was a big game. Just go and give it everything you've got, basically along those lines. And I purposely didn't watch it until I played it with the players. And uh, I didn't, we did, we, we showed them a little bit of debrief work on Bolton, not not as much as we had in the past. And then we played this montage of, of, of footage of family members of the players and it was so emotional. Um, you know, the players didn't know anything about it. I hadn't seen the footage. I knew it was getting played and the emotions that rang around that room and when it was finished playing, I just knew then the players were going to deliver and get get the result. 
And even at 2-0 down, we played particularly well on the day. I think Bolton had had two shots and scored. And with about 20, I think it was about 23 minutes ago, or 2-0 down, and I turned to Martin Crosby and Steve Watson and, and, and Richard Beale, who were my staff, and just said, listen, we're fine, we're going to get a result. I must have thought I was crazy, but <laughs> not, even, not even I thought it would be 90, 96 minutes at the smallest player on the pitch, Paul Caddis <laughs> getting the, the equaliser with a header. But it made for the best soccer Saturday footage, I think, oh, oh I've seen. I think the live, the live cameras came to, uh, the, 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 the I think it was the Reebok Stadium now, then. And uh, they see me sprinting down the touchline to celebrate with 5,000 uh, blue noses. And that, that was the key for me. It was all about keeping their fantastic club and keeping their them and, and doing it for them. Um, and, and it turned out to be a great day. I went home. I get asked all the time, oh, you must have had some celebration. You must have stayed up for a long time to you know, having a drink. And, and to be honest, I didn't. We came back home to Birmingham at, we went out for dinner with the family and um, I was emotionally and physically drained and uh, we didn't even end up finishing the meal and had a couple of beers possibly and I, I went to bed and just slept because I was just totally drained and uh, thankful that we hadn't that um, you know went through the trap door. That was that was that's that's an amazing idea to do that, like to get the uh, the little messages from the the the, the players' uh, families and stuff like that. Like I didn't know that. that's amazing. Um, so for yourself, like um, obviously you've played under some big big name managers. Like it, who have been the kind of biggest influences on your uh, management style? All of them. Uh, as you say, as you rightly say, I've I've um, I feel lucky that the, the the managers I've played for. Um, you know, good managers in their own right. Majority of them had unbelievable playing careers. You know, James Smith was the ball eagle, was the man who <laughs> gave us my debut with 17. He was a motivational manager. He was someone who, you know, would get really into the players and, and that was the type of veer I was from. Um, you know, I'll always be indebted to him for, for giving us my debut with 17 and we obviously get a World Cup winner and Osvaldo Ardiles, who was an unbelievable man-manager of young players, give give us so much freedom. Then we had, you know, the romantic and the unbelievable Kevin Keegan, who just took the club by the scruff of the neck at both as a player and a manager and just lifted it from the doldrums and took it to places that people could only dream of and the, the type of football we played. Uh, Kenny Daglish. Um, obviously a Premier League winner with two different clubs, inspirational, unbelievable playing career. Graham Souness, you know, been successful in, in Europe as a manager. Um, obviously an unbelievable playing career as well, as, as well as Daglish and Keegan. Um, Glenn Roda, someone I grew up with um, and obviously had captained the team, finished me playing days, playing under Glenn and then went on to his coaching staff and worked with him at Norwich. Obviously, the, the sad news a few weeks ago that he'd lost his battle with yeah. the brain tumour. Um, you know, Paul Bracewell, an ex-teammate of mine at Fulham, the man who signed us there. Um, Roy Evans came in for a temporary period to work with Carl Heinz Riedler. So I worked with Roy, who had an unbelievable managerial record at Liverpool. Jean Tigana, who was very similar to Arsene Wenger in his work, you know, took us to new levels in terms of diet and fitness and 
all the sort of aspects of professional football that we'd never been in before and, and, and just taught us so many things. Chris Coleman, who was a big pal of mine, was my captain and teammate at Fulham, become the youngest ever manager before Ryan Mason's took that title now in the Premier League. To see him develop from a young manager to, to an outstanding Premier League manager was brilliant. Uh, Peter Reid, it, it, inspirational. Uh, it, 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 um, it's Sunderland. So these guys... Um, you know, I worked under Sam Allardyce when I was on the staff at um, at Newcastle, and Sam had unbelievable ways with with the data and analytical side of the game. So all these people played a huge part in in, in my career, and I took little bits um, from them how they, they they set their teams up, how they trained, how they handled tough periods, um, you know, and, and 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 all those type of things. But ultimately, you have to be your own man as well. That's a that's like an incredible who's who, isn't it? That's it's amazing. Like looking back, just to all those names you mentioned there, Jesus Christ, man, it's uh, that's unbelievable. Um, we're coming up to the uh, the twenty fifth anniversary of the famous Keegan rant. Um, the, so what was the scene like in the dressing room after the interview? And do you think that like ultimately contributed to his not winning the title that year, or was it always destined that you weren't going to do it? No, that never contributed. There was two games left. Left We had Nottingham Forest on the Friday. We just played at Ellen Road and beat Leeds. And we were travelling to Nottingham straight from the, the game at Leeds. We actually didn't find out about the interview till we got on the bus and, and the team coach to travel to Nottingham. And um, the, 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 the footage came on and, and Kevin was on the bus and we had a very good giggle. <laughs> like we normally did. We had, a, we had a good laugh about it and the manager was... In on that as well, he had a he he could uh, take the Mickey out of himself as well as other people, and um, you know, and it it was great fun. We had some, you know, the lead up to the Forest game, but that was you know all you know. They talk about this main game stuff. They talk about with managers now, and they talk about it with Keegan and Ferguson. Then it's it's just absolute rubbish, really. The main games, it's the managers just reacting. Kevin was a man who wore his heart on his sleeve, and he felt something that Sir Alex had said wasn't right. And, uh, you know, he, he, um, he, he tell, he tell the nation what he felt. And that's the way he was. That's the way he was with players. It was, it was easy to read him as a manager because he, he did wear his heart on his sleeve. We could tell if he was happy. We could tell if he was unhappy. We could tell if he was angry. We could tell if he was disappointed. Um, because, you know, he was a sim, he was, he, he, he his simplicity made him the genius he was, and um, and that that was something he felt necessary to do to protect. Um, I, I don't think he was even protecting us or the club. He was protecting the individual that Sir Alex had mentioned because the situation was we were going to Forest to play in a Premier League game on the Friday, I think it was, or the Thursday, and we'd already organised to go after the season finished to play in Stuart Pierce's testimonial at Nottingham Forest. Stuart was still a player at Forest. We were the big pull because if we, whichever game we played in the country, we would sell our full allocation. So Stuart thought, get Newcastle United down, told his testimonial, and he'd be guaranteed a full house. And what Sir Alex was implying was that possibly Forrest might, maybe he's not go full throttle in the Premier League game because we'd agreed to, to, to be the testimonial team, which is, couldn't be further from the truth. Um, Forrest went at us and we actually drew the game. So, 
made it even more difficult for the last game of the season, um, which obviously made Man United the favourites and eventually won that pipped us to the title. Yeah, I think I, to be honest with you, I remember at the time it was uh, Keegan was just basically saying what everybody else was feeling. To be honest, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was like such a <laughs> shitty thing. That, 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 that was Kevin. See, Kevin d- didn't hide what he was feeling and and, and spoke out about it, and um, that that that's why. It was it was quite simple to play for him because you knew where you stood and you know you, I've had managers before and I've worked with people before that you know that they, they might be unhappy with you but they don't tell you and it's difficult to find out unless you go and ask the question yourself. You never had to do that with Kevin because he explained everything to you uh, very very clearly and you knew what he was feeling. So um, from from Newcastle then obviously like you made the, the move to the Sunderland um, and you got to play the first season at the Stadium of Light. What what was that like? Like playing like I think you scored in the, the the home game, the first home game against Man City. Uh, what was the stadium like? Like obviously it was state of the art at the time, and it still is really. Um, what was it like as a Newcastle guy as well? Like scoring, like in the first game at their brand new stadium. Well, that was a big reason for us to go at the football club as well. The 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 opening of the Stadium of Light, as you said, state of the art stadium at the time, magnificent arena. We're competing in the championship, but as you said, our first game against Manchester City, myself, Kevin Phillips, who was a new signing with me, scored Niall Quinn. And that was quite apt, really, because the three of us proved to have a great relationship with each other on the pitch. And um, we helped each other in scoring goals and assisting goals for each other. And, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed Playing just behind that front two, they, they they were sensational together, and um, uh, yeah, and, and and I think at the time, even though in the championship, I think in Britain, so including Celtic and Rangers, I think we are we are we're averaging the sixth biggest crowd in Britain at the time, so um, forty eight thousand every single home game, thousands away, and a, and a manager who I I love playing for, Peter Reid, and. Um, and an old coach of mine who was assistant, Bobby Saxon, who Bobby was Jim Smith's assistant when I got my debut at 17. And uh, I loved working for them. Um, there was no issues with the Newcastle stuff. I still went and watched Newcastle. I still supported Newcastle. What I had to do is make sure I played well for Sunderland. And um, in the two years there, I felt I'd done that. And um, it uh, we... we we, we lost in the first season in the famous uh, playoff final at Charlton and we steamrolled everybody in the second season to win the, champ- the, the, the championship. So from a professional level, it was a fantastic period and um, I really enjoyed it. I played with some great players, great lads. We had, it, we had a terrific team and a, and a management team that I, that I love playing for. Uh, your next move was off to Fulham. Like you, you didn't actually get a chance to play in the Premier League with Sunderland. You left that that season, if I remember correctly. Um, like, do you feel like you were cheated a little bit that you didn't get a chance to play in front of that four eight thousand in the Premier League, or was the move to Fulham like something that like you like the project there was a good enough reason to to, to leave Sunderland? No, the reason to leave Sunderland was obviously um, my decision. That there's something it it, it happened and. Um, you know, off the field, and uh, I decided that it was it was the right time to move. They they didn't really want to sell us, um, but we're, we're forced into it, really. So, you know, I'll fire it 
it took over at Fulham a couple of years previous the project I could see this club was steamrolling through the leagues when I went down to meet them they were a championship club and they said they wanted to be promoted as soon as possible and they wanted to get into the Premier League and be competitive there and you know um, I joined and you know very similar to Sunderland um, the second year we, we, we steamrolled had everyone won the championship we got into the Premier League and uh, we caused problems to Premier League teams <laughs> at the time we finished um, the highest position in the club's history in the top level in ninth which we probably would have finished higher but we lost Louis Saha in the January window to Manchester United when we were third but we qualified for Europe as well and we had the, the club playing in the um, UEFA Cup the Champions League, uh, the Europa League as it's called now. So I captained the club in Europe. I captained the club to its highest ever position at the time. Roy Hodgson and his lads went on to beat that feat of the, the highest ever finish in the Premier League. But uh, we took the, that was part of a process of a football club going from 91st out of 92 clubs a few years before I joined them to then competing in Europe, which was a brilliant story. So, um, as you mentioned there, like uh, Mohamed Al Fayed, I think of the club. Like it's safe to say he's he's eccentric. Uh, so, did you have to? Did you get to deal with him much? Like, was he like was he a kind of the guy that was like at the training ground, or was it just like you might see him on match day? No, he was a regular visit at the training ground. He was always developing the training ground. You know, he was always improving it the way the managers wanted it. We had a terrific facility um, and training ground, and um, the, the chairman backed every manager with money for players and and infrastructure of the club. He, he didn't just say he wanted to achieve something then didn't support the management teams he had. He was brilliant with the families. He was brilliant with the players. We had no excuses. He gave us everything we needed uh, to be successful. And in football, if someone's doing that to you, you've got to try and achieve some kind of success as repayment back to them and Thankfully, we did, and hopefully, he, he sees it as that because he was a he was a brilliant owner. I can imagine he was a tough owner when you were the manager, the demands <laughs> he put on you. Um, but uh, you know, he was he, he was superb for for us players and, and our families. He he treated us unbelievably well. Did you ever get a chance to buy the Michael Jackson statue? <laughs> nobody <laughs> I, I, we, we met him in the dressing room once. He came in the dressing room after one of the games. What was that like? What's with mental? Like, it's just like such a random, yeah, but it was, a random it was, fucking thing. It right? was normal. It was it was normal procedure. Like some kind of star would be coming because you know he was obviously the 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 owner of the most famous shop in the world. So um, yeah, we um, we he was always having celebrities with him. So uh, what was um, what was uh, John T- uh, Tiganada like as a coach? Because like obviously he looks like the coolest man in the world with the the. Stick in his mouth, yeah, two pick in his mouth. You just look like like the coolest person in the world ever. What 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 was his like? What was his coat? Was he laid back in coat in training, like, or was he like intense and um like? Uh, obviously, he was a great player too. So, uh, like, was he uh, what was he like as a coach? Well, what he'd done is through the week, he'd, he'd felt he'd done all the preparation and all the work, give us the information, and our training session were based on our opponents. So when it come to a match day, he, he just was chilled. He was felt like we'd done the work Monday to Friday. That's what the week was for, leading up to the game. And he, he was very calm. He was he's the team he'd got behind him. Uh, you know, 
his assistant manager, his fitness coach, they were all phenomenal. They took us to new levels with our fitness, the type of football we played, um, the work that we'd done, you know, it was just phenomenal. The recoveries uh, were just to a new level. And, um, you know, we had a, a big British core of players then as well and uh, who were, you know, very experienced at the peak of our careers. And, you know, sometimes you get a foreign manager and they don't want to buy in, but we did because we knew this guy was going to give us a great opportunity to be successful, which he did. So um, you went back to uh, Newcastle then, like, uh, and you became a coach under under Glenn, as you said, um, and then you worked again with him at Norwich. What what kind of a guy was he, and uh, how did he influence uh, yourself, like, going forward? Oh, he's, he's he's a winner. He wanted to. He had high standards. Um, he liked the laugh, but he, you know, he'd captained both captain and managing Newcastle, and um, he was a, 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 a you know a London. Guy, a company who became an adopted Geordie, and um, and he, he so with the opportunity to work with him on his staff, um, I, it was it was a great opportunity for me to learn from him. Um, you know, I'd known Glenn since I was fourteen when I used to go in as a schoolboy. That the manager then I used to train with the first team. Glenn was the captain of the team, so you know he was someone who was always trying to mentor us and. Um, so to work alongside him, you know, was great for me. Yeah, like, like you know, people talk about like uh, it's a really often used phrase like a football man, but he genuinely, genuinely seemed like he was like a, a proper football man and like he loved the game and uh, he'd be missed. So obviously, like uh, you're you're associated with Newcastle. It's like you're like you're you're from there and stuff for like that. And you kind of mentioned that you've been a little bit critical of Steve. But like, what? How do you think they've done this season and going forward? What do they need to do like to to not keep this relegation thing like it, it just it, the club just doesn't seem to be going the right direction really does it so what do you think they need to change well this season's been awful it's it's gone right to the way I but I personally think that's safe now I've got you know real reservations that the other club Fulham I think it's going to be difficult for them to get out of that final position because even though West Brom had put a little spirited run together I do mm-hmm. think that they're down as well and unfortunately I think Fulham's left it too late but there's still hope for them and I know Scott will keep trying to fight every way for that but Newcastle season has been a total disaster in terms of results and performances and the only way to change it is that they've got to change that mentality you know when you all when you when the leader of the club Mike Ashley is just saying that fourth bottom is acceptable you're eventually not going to achieve that fourth bottom and you're going to be in the bottom three and how do you make yourself better well you've got to invest in the squad you've got to it, it takes continued investment it takes um, you know the, the, there was a little bit of positivity with the, with the signing of, of Callum Wilson people were excited but didn't know what Alan St Maximum was going to do who's turned out to be an unbelievable signing a match win on his own right so if if the club are prepared to go again in the summer window, and I, you know I know the pandemic's hit everybody, but and, and reinvest in the team, I think the players that have been there for long periods—the Shelvies, the Lascelles, the Dalos, the Dubravkas—who um, are in the squad there now, the the the, the, the Haydens, the Richies—they'll the, the, be sick of having the annual relegation battles. They want to see better players coming into the group. They want to see where they've got a stronger squad team and squad where they can push up the league and maybe challenge to get in the top 10. Can they nick a, 
the Europa League position. You know, they don't players don't want to have this continuation every year of a relegation battle because, as I said, when the ambition is to finish fourth bottom or higher, you know, you'll eventually feel at that. And um, that, that's the toughest thing for everyone connected with the club to take that. The ambition has to change and the investment in the in the squad, but also the investment in the infrastructure, the training facilities of both the first team and the academy are nowhere near 21st century. And that's what needs uh, upgraded. You're right. I mean, like like Newcastle, like it's a huge club and it's, it's you know, as I said, I'm a Tottenham fan, but... You know, Newcastle was always kind of people's. But it's but it's only it's 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 only huge in the last fifteen years or so because of the the continuation of the loyal fans. They're the ones who keep turning up fifty two thousand every week. They're not huge in what they do on the pitch. You know, the fight relegation battles have been relegated twice in the last, and certainly Mike Ashley's era. You know, um, and then them got come straight back up, and th- so you know. Um, the, the word huge club it only it's only at the, uh, means huge club in this moment in time because they get 52,000 that are brilliantly supported football club and the fans are turning turning up week in week out and that's the only reason they still get associated as being a big club in terms of performance level on the pitch and trophies it's 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 been it's been zilch so you know that that has to change yeah, like I mean, that that's the thing. Like, uh, those fifty-two thousand people deserve better. Um, so, like the, the the Mike Ashley reign has kind of been a disaster, really. Like, I mean, the PR disaster. Like, he's always telling me wanting to sell the club. Like, what do you need to do to get rid of this guy? <laughs> well, we thought we had it with the, you know, the consortium that got turned down at the last minute with you know, some English backers and Saudi backers in there. And I think Mike, for the first time, Mike Ashley was ready to um, sell the club and broker the deal. I still think he's trying to fight legal channels for it to happen. I mean, it can only happen in Newcastle where they get a billionaire in Mike Ashley, but he's a billionaire who doesn't really want to spend money. <laughs> so, so, the wrong type of billionaire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... It's um, it's it. I think you know the only outcome of this, Mike. To be fair to Mike, he's upfront and he doesn't hide anything. He tells people that he ain't prepared to invest any more money into the club. He's not going to be competing with the big boys for transfer fees, etc. It needs a new owner to do that, and I think it can only change when new ownership is 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 taken over the club. So, I think every single fan. Is, is praying and hoping that that can happen sooner rather than later. Is it time for you to uh, get the checkbook out and try and buy it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that would that would be a dream, but obviously, <laughs> the, the, um, you know, unless unless I win the uh, Euro Millions four or five times on the four or five times on the bounce, I, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> so uh, I really appreciate you giving me some of time. I just have one last question before I let you go back to your Saturday. Um, so if you're, you're going to play in the five side tournament, from the players that you've played with, who would be on your team? I, I, oh my god! I, I, I'm really like I've looked at some of the players you've played with, and I'm excited for this one. <laughs> right, well, the keepers it would be between Edwin Van der Sar and Shea Given, and Edwin just tips it. Um, 
world my, class. My, my Irish heart has just broke a little bit there. <laughs> well, it, it, it breaks my heart to see it because she she was she was unbelievable. Um, but Edwin, you know, he's he's won the lot in in club football and been successful with the Netherlands and you know un, an unbelievable goalkeeper. Um, God, this is this is just absolutely crazy. Um, let us go for the attacking players. Obviously, um, I put Shira and Beardsley would be two attacking players. Jesus, uh, and I'd probably go. Philippe Albert would be me one defender, and and probably. God, I've got Janola or Rob Lee. I think probably I'd have to, because I've already got two attackers, I'd have to go to, for Rob Lee because Rob could do everything, defend and attack, whereas Janola was just ridiculous attacking-wise, unbelievable. He didn't have to defend because he just attacked that well. So and so I'd have Janola on the bench. I'd have Aspria on the bench. Oh, Jesus. Oh, I've got, <laughs> there's too many. I mean, you know, you've got... You've got Ferdinand, Les Ferdinand, you've got Quinn and Phillips at Sunderland, you've got Louis Sahar at, at, at Fulham, um, Andy Cole, bloody hell, it's like crazy. Wow. So that's, so this, uh, that's a pretty yeah, solid that's team, man. The most, one of the most difficult five-a-side teams ever to pick. <laughs> I, I like that you didn't include yourself, man. You're not that full of yourself. I love it. <laughs> no, no, no. no. No, there'd have to be a fair few injuries and lots of support for me to get anywhere near that team. <laughs> so I, I I really appreciate taking the time out to, to talk to you, man. It's been fascinating hearing your thoughts on the uh, the Super League and stuff like that. And uh, good luck in Sudan. I'll be making sure to keep an eye on the results. And uh, Thanks, Anthony. Thanks. All the best. See you, mate. Cheers, Bye. buddy. You've been listening to the Down the Pub podcast, recorded in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.